My name is Omar. I'm one of your podcast hosts, and I'm also a lawyer at Treadstone Law. For most Canadians looking to buy, sell, or refinance real estate in Ontario, a lawyer is the last thing on their mind. They're busy dealing with banks, mortgage brokers, realtors, and when everything is said and done, they look for a law firm to finalize the transaction. At this stage, if something is broken, it's hard to fix. And believe me, I'm a real estate lawyer. I've seen it all. How do you gain the right help early on in the process? Speaking to a lawyer one-on-one can get real expensive real quick, and it's probably not the best idea. That is why Treadstone Law has launched several resources for Canadians to have access to the information when they need it the most. You can sign up for one of our online workshops or to our email list to receive information you need when you need it. This information is designed for you to be better prepared and avoid costly mistakes. And for a limited time, it's free. Visit treadstonelaw.ca slash offer or click the link below. My name is Omar. I'm, a, I'm one of your hosts here. Today, we have a very special episode. This is our first episode in our series honoring the Canadian Armed Forces with special guests who are either current or previous service members, members and are now in the real estate industry. So today on our episode, we have a very special guest, someone I've known for about 10 years now, an extremely talented individual with a very interesting background. Mona Siddiqui is a sales representative at Century 21. He's been in the industry for almost 13 years now, and he is also a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. He is part of the Royal Regiment of Canada and has served in the Armed Forces for eight years. Monis was a section commander for four years, which involved training new military recruits, and he has participated in several humanitarian missions as well. Monis, thank you for your service and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. How's it going? How was how was the drive out to work this morning? Drive was clear. Just you know, uh, I did. Uh, I'm 15 minutes away, so it's not it's not too bad. I get in my car. It was there was light snow today. Uh, turn on my podcast and just drive. Honestly, today this morning, I, like I was in my mind, I was thinking, okay, we're in spring now, and then I look outside and there's snow. <laughs> and I, was, <laughs> I know it like, was a shocker. It's like, I was like, we're finally there. It's almost clear weather ahead. And then Canada just reminds you that you're, you're in Canada. Right. So I don't know why two days ago I put away my snow brush. I was cleaning up my car and I'm like, yeah, we're not going to get that much snow. So this morning I had an umbrella in my car <laughs> and I used a folded umbrella to clean the snow off my uh, windshield. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. So tell us, I mean, I guess I gave a little bit of a background. Um, so 13 years real estate eight years in the military, still a currently a service member. Um, uh, so tell us how this started. So 13 years, you're, you have a lot of experience, but you're not that old of a guy. So 13 years, is yeah. still, it's still a lot to have <laughs> under your belt, right? So, so how did it start, I guess? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll tell you, um, it was all my dad. Uh, I was, after high school, I was in college. I remember I was going to a job interview at Best Buy. I had applied to a job and they had reached out and I was going there and I was getting ready, you know, my, in my student tie and my dad asked me, what am I doing? And I said, hey, I'm going to an interview. Like, Where? Best Buy. And he's like, no, forget Best Buy, get your real estate license. I'm like, dad, I'm 18 years old. 
no one's gonna buy homes from me. Let me just do this. But my dad um, has been a lifelong entrepreneur, and he he wouldn't have it. He's like, listen, I will pay you <laughs> for you not to go to Best Buy interview and sign up for uh, real estate instead. And he was just he he convinced me. So I was 18 years old, um, and I logged in. 18 was the minimum age, and I started my course. Um, and by, by before my 19th birthday, I was licensed. Um, thereafter, I did, um, I joined the team. I did, um, I did my university um, part-time and I sold real estate part-time. Nice, nice. So how's, how are those, I guess, I guess you had a good mentor. You had your dad, which is, I think it's great that your dad kind of stepped, stepped up and said, look, like, you can get this hourly job or you can start this career, start building real, even though I wouldn't say like Best Buy is going to help build skills too, but real estate is helping you build kind of these skills that for the rest of your starting a career rather than, than a part-time job or school. Right. So how was Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think it had to do with, with the long-term planning. If you're planning on being in a corporate world in long-term, then sure that Best Buy would have been the correct avenue for gaining relevant experience. Because my dad wanted so badly for me to be an entrepreneur like him and be in the business stream and be self-employed, um, for me, that part that that uh, served as the as the right uh, thing to go, so, <laughs> as the right route to go. So, how were the first two first few years like? So, you're you're 18 years old. So most at that age, yeah. most kids they're not thinking of anything close to. They don't know what a realtor does, probably. So, how how were those first few years for you, like to? I, I'll. I'll tell you, it was a grind. It was a grind. Not many people want to um, trust their life savings to, a eight, to an 18-year-old. That's I wouldn't, and I don't blame them. Um, so I worked with other senior agents as their, you know, errand boy, so to speak, um, and I did all their legwork, and I got a little cut from the deals. So while that cut wasn't, wasn't, career making, but at the same time, it was like a part-time job. It was like any part-time job. So I made what I would have made at, part, at Best Buy. I wasn't making a lot, but I was gaining relevant experience. I was gaining industry experience. I was seeing the industry go up and down. I was seeing really experienced and successful people work in front of me and learning by, you know, just being close to them, just being under them. Something you can't learn, like just by in a book, right? It's it's, it's you need absolutely soft skills. Yeah, you need that kind of coaching and that experience. So you you mentioned the industry, you saw the ups and downs too. How do you feel um, that it's changed since you started? Um, has it changed? Absolutely, absolutely, it has changed. Um, Thirteen years ago, mind you, maybe the industry changed. Oh, or the industry changed a bit, and I changed a bit. I also now see the world through a different lens. I've matured more. I have traveled the world. I've seen, um, I've, I've, uh, I've been in the military. So, that, you know, uh, I've, I've dealt with different people. I've, I've dealt with different situations. Um, industry as a whole, from a real estate point of view, it has saturated in terms of realtors. So there's a lot more realtors now than they were back then. Mind you, houses are also a lot more expensive than they were back then. Back then, you had to sell five houses a month to stay aboard, right? Today, you can do it with two. So um, that's, that, uh, 
that's the biggest change. Also, I think it's the saturation which has led to a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, fraudulent practices. For, for back of for lack of a better word, there is there's a lot of stuff that happens that's you know a lot of the, the public doesn't know um, because now we're dealing with such large sums of money. Um, affordability, especially in the GTA area, is a factor. A big factor is a, is, is a problem for most. So when you are running so close to the edge and so close to the affordability line, whether you can get into a house and the difference is, you know, uh, uh, one little lie can make the difference of you being a homeowner or renting for the next five years, right? So people lie a lot more. People lie on their job. Um, we, we come across... Uh, I never did that before, but now we come across fake job letters, fake pay stubs, um, and it's the experience that you know kind of helps you um, helps you helps you swift through them. Wow! Yeah, it's good. So okay. dealing dealing with people has become has gotten a lot a little a little trickier now. Yeah. Uh, back then it was a lot a lot more straightforward. Okay, I guess I guess uh, people are are getting more desperate too. Like you were saying, affordability. How does someone that just that that starting their life in this economic environment with the salaries afford a house, start saving? What's the what's the bottom end of the market? Like five, six hundred thousand, maybe like the cheapest cheapest house on average. Yeah, um, absolutely. We have I, to save two hundred thousand. One bedroom condo, six hundred thousand. Yeah, I mean, and, and unless you're paying that insurance, the the, and paying less than 20% down, you're never going to be like, it's impossible for someone to save that much of a down payment without being in the market. So absolutely, there are pressures so that makes sense. I didn't know that it was, this was increasing. Um, I guess by the time it comes to our table, um, we're at the last stage of the process. The mortgage brokers kind of dealt with a lot of those things. Realtors dealt with it. So we get to it when everything is kind of sifted through and we're doing more of the checking title, making sure there's other fraudulent issues not going on. But um, yeah. I guess that does make sense, the financing side. Nope. Difficult. Yeah, the financing side, that's yeah. the biggest problem, right? Yeah. Finance is the biggest challenge that people face right now. Um, if you're not, if you're, especially if you're a first-time homebuyer, if you've had a house in the past and that house that you're, maybe your parents bought for 300000 which is now worth $1.3, um, now you're sitting on that million-dollar equity and your parents can afford which is happening a lot now for millennials that parents are taking some of the equity out of their house and helping the millennials get into their first house. But what if you're, if, what if you're the, what if you're a first, first generation, uh, first generation immigrant, right? Uh, what if you don't have, what if your parents didn't buy a house way back when? Uh, what if you don't have somebody with a million dollar equity sitting there being able to help you in which case, and the market is going to continue going up. So a lot of people, um, Either go through the partnership route where they, with the two people, two friends would get together, be on the same mortgage and buy a house, um, own it for three years, watch the house go up. And in three years, they can sell it, take the equity out. And each of them have enough equity for the first, you know, for the first individual house. Um, or they're, uh, they're going through the, the, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the fraudulent route. Um, the, the, the mortgage frauds are a huge problem, in my opinion. But then again, that's mm -hmm. uh, there's enough desperate people out there. Yeah. 
We'll get to, uh, we'll, go, we'll dive a little deeper into the market uh, later in the session. Mm -hmm. So right now I wanted to also just focus on um, your career a little bit uh, more. So just yes. to get back on that too, um, you spent um, eight years in the military, right? Eight was it eight, right? Not six, yeah, eight mm -hmm. years in the military. Yeah. And then 13 years as a realtor. And that military stint started in between your career as a realtor, right? So you start, became yeah. joined afterwards. How do you, do you feel there were any skills that you gained um, during your time in the military that you felt transferred over to your to your experience as a realtor, right? And then they benefit. And if so, like, what were they? What do you think they were? Absolutely. Look, so I was part of the Reserve Force. Um, we, so I was doing real estate part-time and I was doing military, right? Um, and in the military, you, so for the most of us, we get to decide who we associate with. Right. On a day-to-day -day basis, we, we each, to some extent, have a say in who we deal with day-to-day -day basis. We, we get to decide our tribe, so to speak, right? Like-minded individuals attract together. You become friends with people. You go to, you know, you go through, you go to university with hundreds of, hundreds of others like you, and you walk away with, with a group of 20, 25 friends. Um, and then that's where, that's how you, that's how you, that's how you're, entire life progresses. You attract like-minded people. And if someone's not for you, you say, you know what, that person is not for me for whatever reason, right? Different personality types. Um, in the military, you don't have that, that luxury. In the military, literally, uh, you get who you get and you have to learn to work with them. Um, and you have a job to do. So you learn a lot of soft skills, a lot of interpersonal skills. You learn how to deal with different kinds of people. You learn to put your feelings about the person aside and focus on the task in front of you. Um, in the military, I, I, I remember, um, this, is, this is weird, but when I first started in 2013, um, I remember the first day, the first day of orientation, we were in a big hall and we would see, and I could, I could notice like-minded people kind of make clicks. Right. Uh, guys who are from Toronto would be like in one corner kind of talking and, you know, they, they looked and talked similar uh, guys who are from out of town, you know, um, who are from the suburbs or from farmlands or just, you know, maybe out of the province. They are they have their own um, click or the hangout area. That's how the first week was. But after the first week, we were all jumbled together. We were all divided into sections. And you had to learn to work with them. And you either succeeded with them as a group or you failed as a group. So if there's a section of eight and one person isn't pulling their weight, then the entire section suffered. So slowly, like-minded people, whether it was, it was race or any other factor that helped them relate to each other, that didn't matter to them as much anymore. At the end of the day, it all became about performance. Within a month, those old clicks didn't matter anymore. The ones that formed in the first week, within a month, it was all about production, all about performance. If you performed in your section, you pulled your weight, people liked you, you got along with everybody. It had nothing to do with your race, your religion, your background, the way you talked, the way you, you know, where you came from, your education, none of that mattered. If you performed, people liked you. If you didn't perform, you know, you were, <laughs> you were called a mouth breather. And you'd be written up. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean, I, I think also like it's 
it's easy to overlook how like the emphasis of the experience you're talking about because people might like the first instinct might be okay in a job you're forced to be in an environment where you have to trust people you don't know but in a job you're never going to be in a position where those people have to protect you right and those people have to like your life is it, it depends and their lives everyone is intertwined it depends on everyone being like forgetting about all those things and saying look we all have a common goal we're a group we're together in this so let's get through this together right and that's something you don't get in in an everyday experience do you know what i mean like it's absolutely like, so you know you start a new job you see a person even if you don't like them you you know in your mind you only have to tolerate them for nine to five yeah. you are going to be your you know you're going to be judged on your work alone if that person doesn't work you're like good that person doesn't work he's going to get fired i don't like him anyway great right <laughs> military is different military you want everyone in your section to perform. Otherwise, you are going to suffer. You can be your best self, but if someone else isn't pulling your weight, pulling their weight, you're going to suffer. So what do you do? You quickly finish your work and you go over and say, hey, do you need a hand with something? Do you need a hand making a bed? Do you need a, do you need a hand with something? Something I can do to eventually make my life easier, mm -hmm. right? And that inevitably, uh, you know, creates, a deeper bond where you know you're you're helping somebody polish their boots or make their beds um do their laundry so you come to rely on others whether you like them or not mm -hmm. um on a whole different level and then eventually we're all humans you know what if you're around somebody enough you see their weaknesses but if you really want to you also start to see the good in people the good the good in them, their strengths. Their strengths may not be as apparent as someone else's who can do, you know, 100 push-ups, but they can have their own strengths. And once you start to live close with each other and, you know, spend a significant time and see each other's more hidden strengths, you develop a deep bond. Um, and that really helps you build soft skills, which in my mind, help you throughout your life. What kind, you of, never what kind of soft that. skills would you say? Like, what, do you have examples? Uh, soft skills would be, you know, just dealing with different personalities. You know that someone is might have the best heart, but they're quick to anger, right? They have a short fuse. You learn that, hey, this person has a short fuse. It's not their fault. They're, amaz they're an amazing person. But you know they get worked up fast, but they also come down fast. Right. So you say, OK, you know what, when this person's going to get worked up, I'm not going to reply in the moment. I'm just going to hold back. I'm going to wait for that person to come down. Right. Um, another example is some people are need just a little bit more encouragement. Others don't. Others are self-sufficient. They are self-motivated. Um, so you you learn to not filter, but rather um, judge personality types better and learn how to work with different personality types, how they need to be dealt with. Makes sense. And I guess that also helps you, you take account of yourself too, right? Like, oh, what are those, what, which of those things do I have and how do I deal with myself in, in when I'm oh, navigating experiences? Absolutely. hundred percent. You know what, being, being in the army, being around people, I'm, you know, everyone is vocal for the most part. We are all very, I don't want to say confrontational, but we are more outspoken. So I've had many people tell me or confront me on my weaknesses. So I didn't go through the bubble. You know, I didn't go through, through the life in a bubble um, 
not looking at my my own weaknesses where everyone around me is like-minded so they are you know they're only saying good things about me right um they have nothing bad to say about me yeah when you work with people and they really you know they they let you know when you mess up you understand your weaknesses um a lot better and that's true loyalty i think i think that's a real like someone who actually comes up and says no i'm not gonna sugarcoat like there is a there is the value to that sugarcoating within circumstance but as a long-term kind of solution towards someone's problem I don't think so. I think it's the person that says, no, look, this is a problem. You should fix this. They're being more loyal to you because of that reason. Right. So that's absolutely call a spade a spade. Right. Uh, I think dealing with that, going through that experience has um, it has made me a lot, a lot more straightforward. Um, I am now a lot more. I'm quicker to call people out if there's something wrong and I'm quicker to get to the point. I also don't like to beat around the bush if there's a problem or if there's something that needs to be said. Um, I've, in my experience, I've, I've learned that it's better to just say it and deal with it rather than, you know, um, talk in circles. And then, so I guess to, to, to tie it together. So you talked about how um, you had a good experience um, just kind of learning about yourself, learning about other people, how to handle different kind of personality types, different social and environments through the soft skills. Now, as a realtor, um, what circumstances do you think um, that helps you uh, succeed, right? Um, what, where are those skills applicable, do you feel, at the most, I guess, within your career? Okay, so <clears throat> where, they, where they apply the most is when dealing with different clients. Um, there are many personality types, or, you know, as my coach says, there's four main personality types. Um, you learn to deal with each personality type, how they need to be dealt with. Some clients, they need encouragement. Others don't. There are some clients where if you encourage them too much, they push back for no reason. But they just, if you encourage too much encouragement in their mind says, you know, red siren, red siren, um, you know, red flag, fast-talking salesperson, um, defend. So they're defending when no one's attacking them. So those are the people where you really have to, you know, Give your piece, give your opinion, and back out. Um, oftentimes, you deal with people, you deal with couples or clients where the husband has one personality type and the wife has different personality types. And now you somehow have to work with those two personality types, and you have to help these two very different personality types make the biggest <laughs> purchase decision of their life, biggest decision <laughs> or the most expensive decision of their life, yeah. right? Um, you're really dealing with their life savings. So uh, that, that's, that's not always easy. So you're, you're like a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <it is. laughs> you, you, somehow you become a therapist. It's, 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 it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Wife wants one thing. Husband wants one thing. Mona says, no, this is what you guys need. They're like, okay, fine. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go down. <laughs> I, well, I hope. You know what? I, I wish it was that easy. I wish they yeah. would just listen to me. Is that okay? You know what? Mona says we'll find out. So Mona find knows. <laughs> no, but in the end, I mean, I think it's a slow, gradual process. You bringing them to kind of a medium, probably. But that's that's interesting. Um, okay, Absolutely. so I guess moving on. So we we talked about what the skills that you felt you you uh, you learned from your your career in the military and how they've helped you. Now, generally speaking, outside of the things that you mentioned, so you mentioned um, kind of good soft skills, 
in terms of dealing with different personality types? Or do you think there's any other characteristics that make a good realtor? Like what, what makes a strong realtor? Personal. So now this is, I'm, you know, I'm blowing my own horn, uh, but mental resiliency. Okay. You have to be resilient. You can find the perfect house. Your client can be super excited. They will push themselves and place the best offer. And then you don't get the house. Everyone's disappointed. Next day, you will see another house. They're really excited. They're ready to, you know, sign the check, you know, take the leap again. Again, you don't get the house. So there's a fatigue. Um, and their emotions for clients, who are the ones paying for it? Who are the ones who will be living in the house? Their emotions are a lot more involved than mine are, right? Um, so I have to be, I have, if I'm not mentally resilient myself, if I get discouraged easily, if I become down and, you know, if I say, you know, no point in, no point in reaching for a detached house, fine, I guess we'll just, let's just buy you semi-detached. I'm just making, I'm just saying an example. Um, if I can't pick myself up, how am I supposed to help them up, right? Um, so you yourself have to have your personal strength to, to get up. All right. There was a bidding war. You lost dust off, uh, move on. Um, you have to have the flexibility that you like the house, but great. There's something else that you like better. All right, let's place an offer on that Monday and the other one on Tuesday. Let's see which one we get. Right. Um, you have to adapt and overcome. So if there's an issue, you like a house you you put an offer on it now the before closing the heater isn't working the furnace or the ac or um the sellers it has happened where the sellers excuse me the buyers aren't able to get a mortgage now last minute what are you doing right how can you help them um all of this this uh this goes in um and if you're dealing with somebody who is who isn't mentally strong himself they're not going to be able to you know it it sounds rough to say but uh, the amount of real realtors there are outside there's about seventy thousand realtors right now in gta and out of seventy thousand a rough number of full-time a rough estimate is only six percent of those are full-time realtors oh, wow. okay so while being a part-time realtor worked fine 10 years ago when the market was very slow and very steady in today's environment, it is, it's, 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 it's not going to, you don't get, you should, you cannot rely on somebody who does not, who, who's doing, who's an engineer nine to five and he gets off work and then he shows you houses. Okay. Um, so you have to, you have to be with somebody who's, who's flexible, who's able to adapt and overcome and who's, in the market every day, 24-7, like they're, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't want to say 24-7, but <laughs> you know what, the job, the job turns 24-7 somehow. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. You, like, somehow you end up dreaming about your clients no, <laughs> and their problems. No, and, <laughs> it, and, happens, it happens, And I find you guys, like the realtors, like the ones that are in it, like you, like like someone who's committed, like Monas, is, is there all day too, right? We're, we're getting texts at like 10 p.m., Hey, I need you to check a status certificate or something, or I need, we have an offer that got accepted. Can you re whatever it is, you guys are grinding. Right. And, and, and that's how the client really knows that it's like that you're in the industry and then you, you have the experience to provide them kind of that journey or that navigate through that industry, as opposed to 
I'm in the industry on Fridays, so I'll, I'll give you a little yeah, advice. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I've got I've got like 20, 20, 25 WhatsApp groups for different buyers where it's a WhatsApp group of me, husband, and the wife. Okay. And now they are laying in bed, you know, 11 at night or after midnight, just searching for properties and sending screenshots <laughs> on that WhatsApp group. In the morning, the husband looks at the group and the husband is like, no, you know, I don't, maybe not this one, maybe not that one. Now I wake up to, I don't know, 200 messages every morning and I'm, I'm, I'm going through them. I'm going through those WhatsApp groups where the husband and wife even don't, don't even agree with each other's choices. Yeah. And in the middle, I have to be the one to say, all right, guys, this is not for us. We're not, this is out of our range. This looks great on the surface, but trust me, uh, the neighborhood isn't good. I have to yeah. play that middleman between them. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, again, as you said, therapist. <laughs> therapist, and then and then you, you were saying how like uh, how you have to uh, manage emotions, if, if make sure people don't get drained and exhausted from the this competitive market. So it's like almost like a motivational speaker and and a therapist. So <laughs> several different jobs <laughs> jobs here at the same time. So uh, I guess to close off the first part of our discussion. So if if I'm looking for um, or what's the process look like if uh, if someone wants to work with your firm? So how, what, like, is there a particular process? Like, how do they get in touch with you? Or how do they sign up? I guess is the process. First step is I would encourage everyone to interview multiple realtors. I am not going to say go on modis.ca. That's M O N I S dot C A and call me, but you should. <laughs> Uh, he should be your first that. interview and and, and your last <laughs> but, uh, interview. You, yeah, exactly. You know what? Make me the last interview, not the first. Uh, if, if you already have somebody lined up after me, I know you're not going to commit to me. <laughs> but also, I want you to see what else is out there before I'm given a chance to say my piece. Um, it's human. We are all different people. We all have different personalities. So while I like myself, I think I'm a great person. You may not, you may, <laughs> you and me may not gel like that. Okay. You may not feel like Mona's the best realtor out there. I think I'm the best realtor out there. You may not, you may, you may disagree. Right? I, I, I think he's so, a great realtor too. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> always, just like for any job, always interview several. It is better if you interview people who you have been referred by somebody you trust, right? So it is always better to interview someone who you at least have been referred by somebody. So you have one positive connection rather than pulling, you know, calling somebody off of a bus bench. Um, and from there, talk to them, talk to them, find out how much production did they do, right? How, how long have they been in the, in the business? What was their last year like? What houses have they sold recently? Um, how many clients are they working with right now? Right. Um, and there's two, honestly, when, when it comes to that, there's two extremes. You can go for somebody who's, who's, who's done nothing. Excuse me. I don't say nothing, but you know, who, who hasn't uh, been in business very long. You can go with them and they can give you their undivided attention because they only have two clients. So you will, have their undivided attention versus you can go for someone who's super popular in your neighborhood, has all the bus benches, has, you know, um, uh, millions of, of, of pop-up ads on Facebook, paid advertising and all those things. But those guys, 
the quality of service that you get is often not what you would hope for because that person is dealing with 200 clients to them you're you know you're just one of 200 so take it or leave it you they don't have time for your to be your therapist they will say this is the house you want it let's look at it you want to offer it okay great let's buy it that's it so you have to find something in the middle whatever works for you for your person for your personality style for your lifestyle makes sense so so if if this video uh was enough for people to decide i think monus is for me how do they get in touch with you okay for me monus.ca m-o-n-i-s monus.ca easiest way to remember monus.ca okay. or my phone number is 647-526-0333 if you're looking to retain Treadstone Law, it's never been easier. Our entire process is online. From completing the retainer to your signing appointment, everything is done from the comfort of your own home. No need to take time off to visit a lawyer's office for your signing when you can complete everything from your living room table. The best part is you don't have to pay anything when you're retaining our firm. Visit treadstonelaw.ca slash offer or click on the link below to retain us today. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, so I guess for the next phase, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the real estate process. So you have 13 years of experience, so worked with tons of clients, and you've you've navigated. I think uh, with the interesting, like perspective you can bring is you navigated um, the different uh, stages of the industry too, right? As the industry has been climbing, you've been there too. Um, before the industry yeah. reached the height today, you were there. So within the context of all that, so what do you think um, when, you're, when, when someone is buying real estate, what is the biggest mistake you found that people make, whether it was always happening or something that maybe this new industry has brought on over the last few years? Okay, so... Or, I, two... I, guess, I guess to to bring it back a little bit, What's the biggest mistake first-time buyers make? Let's just start with that. First time, okay, all right. So the two mistakes that I can very um, clearly identify uh, when it comes to first-time home buyers is first, not understanding the true and total cost of ownership, okay? 20 years ago, we weren't, we weren't spending such a large chunk of our monthly paycheck towards the house. Today, at least in GTA, uh, real estate has become by far the largest expense. And we are all pushing towards the our max number. So there's no buffer room. Okay, we are spending to the top of our of our limit. So one of the mistakes they make is one of the one of the mistakes that first-time home buyers often make is not understanding the true cost of or total cost of the ownership. So not just the mortgage, but the more but the insurance. Okay, the closing costs, mortgage insurance, okay, uh, maintenance. If you live in a condo, you give a month, it's easy to factor in that $400, $500 a monthly maintenance fees. But if you're in a house and you are living paycheck to paycheck and you are putting everything in your mortgage and now all of a sudden an expense comes up and you haven't been saving up for that expense, you haven't been putting aside $100, $200 aside for the maintenance and now all of a sudden you're hit with a $10,000 bill that can be crippling. Um, we often don't understand that um, if you miscalculate, if you miscalculate all the 
total costs of ownership, you become really, the term is house poor, okay? Um, first time home buyers, almost everybody, it's almost expected, but first time home buyers in Toronto, when they buy, they go through this period of, of, of being house poor where so much of their um, paycheck is going towards mortgage and the total cost of ownership that they don't, they often don't have enough money saved up for, you know, uh, stuff like going out, stuff like, you know, personal savings, um, emergencies. Um, and I've seen too many people at that point start to rake up their credit cards, which again, credit card is a, you know, is, is, is a death trap. If, if you get caught up in the cycle, it's very hard to break free from it. Um, I think, I think that was, so that would be, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. You go I said, ahead. That would be the first mistake. Okay. Mm -hmm. That would be the first mistake. Um, second mistake is people often, um, are very ambitious about what they can get for their given budget and they spend too much time looking. Okay. So I've had clients who have been looking for six months and in six months, if last year, what I showed you six months ago, if six months ago, whatever I showed you for 800,000, if you didn't like that, then Please understand that six months later, you are only going to get less for the same 800,000. You're not going to get more. Okay. So yes, it is important to look at several houses, do your homework, educate yourself on what's out there and don't buy the first house that you look at, but spending too much time looking means that if you're already towards the end, towards the top end of your affordability, if you come to me, say, Monis, I am pre-approved for 900,000. All right. And I'm showing you houses that are, you know, listed at 800 and they're going to sell for nine around and you don't like those. Guess what? The house that was 900 today, two months later, that same house is 925. So you can't even get what I showed you as your first house, which you didn't like now anymore. Now I'm only going to show you worse and worse and worse simply because your 900 cannot keep up with the market expansion. Average salary grows in Toronto, average salary grows at 2%. Average real estate price in the worst, <laughs> like the, in the most conservative way, um, goes up exactly. You know what? It goes up 1% a month. That's yeah. a very conservative estimate. Yeah, very right? conservative. But so if, yeah, yeah if, 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 if the houses are going up 1% a month, then the, there's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity cost. There's a, there's a cost of waiting you are going to on the $900,000 house, which you say no, because you don't like the, the kitchen or the finishes or the, you know, the, the driveway you want it a certain way or the size of the backyard, you let go, you let go of those things every month, your affordability is going down by 9,000. If you spend six months looking on a conservative level and in a, in a, a very conservative estimate in six months, you can afford 60,000, 70,000, $80,000 less than what you could. Um, six months ago. So that would be the second mistake that first time home buyers often make. Yeah, I think those are important points. They really, um, so I guess the first one was the, the understanding their budgets, right? The closing costs. And I, I, I thought of something too, back in around, I think 2012, when I, I was helping my dad, uh, he was looking for an investment property in Toronto. Um, so he was just like, we were looking together. And then um, if you were looking at condo buildings, if a condo building had condo fees at like three to four hundred dollars, that was like the high end. Like that was like this is like the super expensive condo fee buildings. Now three to four hundred is like normal or below average, right? It's like that's below average. Expect six seven hundred bucks at least. 
And people aren't thinking yeah. of that when they're looking at a property price that this is another mortgage payment pretty much, right? It's another like, what is it? Like a couple of hundred grand maybe in mortgage financing mm -hmm. that you have to pay yeah. monthly without that benefit. So definitely something that we yeah. find um, that clients aren't thinking about as much, but then the realtors obviously are good at like going through that process, giving that, that perspective of, look, you need to look at everything, not just that number. And the other side, I also thought of um, how hard this, uh, it must make your job with the how the industry right now it, the norm is uh just pricing really low and then expecting people to come in and then you want a bid war right but then your clients coming to you saying no but it's listed at that does that happen still or oh absolutely it happens especially with the first time home buyers it happens all the time and you know what this is where experience matters this is where it is important to have a realtor with experience and knowledge to defend your, yourself or your interests. There is no set number of by which every property is underlisted by. There is no, there, there's no formula that, hey, if it's listed at 800, it's going to sell at 900. If it's listed at 900, it will sell for 1 million. There's no set number. Okay? So your realtor actually has to know the market for you to tell, no, this property is underlisted by 100,000. That property is underlisted by about 150,000. That property is underlisted by 300,000, which is normal, which is normal. On my street, and this is such a silly thing. On my street, um, uh, next street over, a house sold, and the realtor who sold it put a big sign on it that says, sold $475,000 over asking. And I cannot stand that, that I, every time I drive by it, I'm like, I cannot stand that board because that board, you're, you're, it's either the buyer is going to feel like a sucker, right? Um, or the seller is going to feel like, feel amazing. But you know that that house was, I mean, I can list something at $1 and sell it for a million and then advertise myself that, look, I'm the best agent ever who sold $1 million over asking, right? <laughs> Um, so this is where experience yeah. comes into hand. It comes, it comes into hand. You have to know what you're dealing with. Your client can love a property. And you, if you are wrong in your estimate, you say, you know what? The neighbor sold for 120 over asking. So for on this house, we're going to sell 120 over asking. And the house sells for 130 over asking. And your client misses it by $10,000. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't look very good. Yeah. It, it doesn't work out very good. But I think at some level, like no matter how much you say this, clients are going to come because <laughs> because there's that hope right like i what i find what happens like one of my friends i think he was looking and I, he was he was talking about how they're like in his budget there or whatever like he was complaining to me oh. and and i was saying you have to look like kind of what's what's more reasonable like speak with a realtor get them to help you and he was saying no no like it's possible that they'll sell it at that price <laughs> like there is that chance that maybe they'll sell around that price <laughs> who knows why they list it then <laughs> So people you know that. So, so this is where I don't want this is where unexperienced realtors really do clients injustice. And this is where uh, yes, it sounds because you can this this is where trusting the person is a comes into comes into play. You have to trust them. Because understand that when you buy the house, everyone knows that when you buy a house, the real estate agent is going to get paid. So if you don't trust that person, then every house you walk into and the realtor's telling you that, hey, this is a good deal, 
in your mind, you don't really trust them. You're saying, you know what? This guy just wants to get paid. He's only shown me 10 houses. He doesn't want to show me 10 more. He just wants me to buy the first house, which meets the, 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 the bare minimum quota. So you know what? No, I'm going to keep looking because something better will come around, right? That agent, if he is honest and sincere to you, then it doesn't matter whether you see 10 houses or 20 houses. He gets paid enough to compensate for his time. But if you don't trust him, then you're not going to trust him when the time when you like a property. You're not going to trust him when the time comes to place an offer, because you will feel that the realtor, your realtor, who you can't fully trust, keeps telling you to put more and more money down on the table, more and more money on the number. Right? I mean, on the paper. Right. And you're going to say, no, no, no. You just want me to overpay because you get paid. This is where this where, you know, it's things fall apart. You have to trust the person. Very, very, very well said, because then it's like you're wasting both people's time, right? It's we're all humans. Yeah. We're all humans. We're all looking out for for our best interest. At some point in this case, uh, you have to trust the person. If you don't trust the person, please get rid of them. You're wasting your time. You're wasting their time. Go out and get somebody who you can gel with and and build a connection. Um, there have been cases where I've come across realtors who who really did their own clients injustice by not knowing the market well enough. Okay, um, this wasn't the question, but I will but I will take it there. Um, I dealt with a client last year. I was selling a condo. And the realtor, the buying realtor, got the person to overpay. Okay. Now, as a selling agent, I'm going to look at the highest number and I'm going to accept it. Okay. The, the buyer trusted his agent and his agent said, you know what? Don't worry, I'll get you a mortgage. So he put the number on the table. I mean, he put the number on the paper We and he got the house. And there was it was a 90-day closing. So he had three months to arrange a mortgage. My sellers had a good tenant, good paying tenants who they evicted. So we got rid of the tenants. The tenants left. The sellers waited for 90 days. And after 90 days, that person didn't close and he couldn't close. Why? Because his realtor who promised him to, who promised to get him mortgage, his, his, him a mortgage approval didn't come through. And the buyer calls me crying, just crying and saying, look, that was the money that I put as a down payment on your house was my life savings. I trusted. So the real estate, the realtor that he trusted, he was a part-time agent. He didn't know what he was doing or he was, he didn't, he overestimated his own, um, his own condition. Somehow I don't want to um, speculate on what happened there, but that agent was one of the most unprofessional agents I've ever dealt with. He disappeared. Buyers who are now my clients, they keep calling me. They just Googled my name. They got my phone number and they're calling my cell phone number for, for this is sometimes it comes to bite me, but um, it is everywhere. So my cell phone number is available online. A lot of agents, you know, protect against that and resist and only put their office number, but my cell phone's everywhere. Um, they kept calling me and they said, please give us a deposit back. And honestly, if it was up to me, I felt bad enough for the people. They, they, they gave me their children's medical record. They're, they had two children with severe medical, uh, medical needs. 
and they said, look, this is our only chance to ever own a home. If you don't return our deposit, we cannot buy something else. Meanwhile, my seller, who actually had, an, had a vacant property for three months, and those three months, not only did he pay the mortgage, he also paid maintenance. And the maintenance for that building was about $1,100. So in his mind, he said, look, I've, I'm out this much money. There's no way I'm letting go. And the, the, the seller was out of luck. And the seller literally took everyone to court. He took me to court. And I'm like, I have nothing to do with this. It got dismissed. But, uh, you know, sucky things happen sometimes. You have to trust the person you're dealing with. How did it end up playing out? Did, uh, did I don't know. I they're still they're still after the sellers. I had nothing to do with it, so I you know. But um, the sellers are saying no. The sellers ended up selling the property forward to somebody else. They got their money. They probably got more. The sellers, yeah, they they got more. Um, but uh, they, they didn't get a whole lot more, but they did get more. Um, what was it? Because the first person, uh-huh. the first person did overpay. Oh, yeah, the yeah, first yeah, person yeah. did overpay, yeah. right? The first person did overpay um, and he, they weren't able to get a mortgage. And the other realtor who was their realtor went MIA. They kept calling me. They're like, we cannot reach our realtor who promised us a mortgage. And I'm thinking that's a guy who is contractually bound by you. And you cannot find him, and yet you are able to Google my name and get my phone number and call me ten times a day, crying, asking for your deposit back. It's it sucked. Honestly, it melted my heart when I read the the medical the medical records and such. But I didn't have the money, right? I wasn't keeping the money. I couldn't have returned it to them. It was my decision to make. Yeah, no, no, of course it uh, puts you in a different, different. We've had a lot of similar situations because a lot of times this, these stages also happen. At, at the final when it's with the lawyer's office and then yeah. you, financing falls through. Now they're scrambling to get maybe a private lender and private lender is going to charge, like they're going to add so much to a million dollar property becomes 1.1 million by the time you pay the, the private lender and everyone else. So yeah. we've definitely seen a lot of these experiences. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it's difficult because like, like you said, your client was out of pocket. Right. And, and your client was spending money. And to them, it's like they're thinking, OK, I have I've been spending all this cash and I had cash flow coming in that I lost. So it's, it's a difficult situation, definitely. Um, and the market doesn't help. Right. If the market had kind of um, was a little bit more slower, reasonable growth, I guess, um, then um, then you wouldn't have as much of this. So to to, I guess, focus on that a little bit. So affordability is a big issue for first time home buyers. Um, do you have any advice? Like, are there maybe particular areas in the GTA you would recommend that are better for first-time home buyers? There isn't any one area better for first-time home buyer over the other. But what I will say is, use a stepping stone. Don't get caught up in the in the excitement of buying your home, buying your first home. Your first home doesn't have to be your dream home. Okay. I, this is a silly example. I, I always paint <laughs> this is silly pictures. I think uh, I'm a very visual thinker. So I, I, I give this example to my clients. Um, I tell them, look, imagine there's a train going and you need to get on the train. That train is moving at 20% a year, right? And you can only run at 2% a year because you're more, your savings or your salary is only increasing at 2%. You have to get on the train now. You cannot, if you don't get on the train now, 
Two months later, you will only get on a box which is further behind, not further ahead than the box that you could have gotten back gotten on. Now, once you are on the train, you don't have to like the box. Just get on the train. Once you're on the train, now guess what? Now, because the train is moving, you are building equity a lot faster. Your 2% savings versus plus the equity that your house that you didn't like, but is still appreciating is going up. And once you're on the train, it is easy to skip boxes and jump ahead. I'm not sure, like when I was little, we used to go um, NTTC. I remember as a teenager, not even, you know, middle school, we'd go through boxes. And I don't know why that was the most exciting thing as a, yeah, <laughs> as a kid, yeah. right? But is, think of it like that. Once you're on the train, you can jump boxes with time and slowly get to where you want to be. If you stay off the train, you know, you know what? No, I don't like this. I have three kids, so I want four bedrooms so each of my kids can have their, 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 their bedroom. And I want a backyard because I have a dog. Um, and you keep waiting for that perfect one. Guess what? That train, even if it slows down, so there's a lot of talks about the train, the real estate train slowing down, even if it slows down. From 20, it is not going to go to 2% a year, right? So it will still be, unless something's happening on your side, unless you are anticipating a big career jump, a big salary jump, uh, maybe getting married where you're going to have a, access to a second income, unless any of those things are happening, get on the train as soon as possible. Once you're on the train, then jump boxes. Your first home doesn't have to be your dream home. I think I think there's also the, um, the other end. Um, I guess we can talk about a little bit more about that later. But even people usually are fearing, right. okay, train might slow down. Good analogy, by the way. Um, but in the yeah. long run, it's always been an upward trend. Right? Even when you've had downturns or slight decreases or crashes even, the overall long run for real estate has been up because the dollar is devalued every single year, right? Inflation itself is going to have yeah. some kind of impact if you forget actual gains, which you're, you guys are getting or we're getting right now. Mm -hmm. So now we talked about first time home buyers. Um, first time home buyers, uh, I think it was an important topic because I'm sh as you can relate, it's like, it's just it's a different experience when you're working with a first time home buyer because there's so much more emotions going on, issues, uh, like things, expectations. What about repeat home buyers? Um, do you think repeat home buyers make different mistakes from first time home buyers since they've had that kind of, I've been through it mindset? Uh, for repeat home buyers, it's often complacency because they're comfortable or they are experienced. They often don't research enough. They often think that they know best. They often think that, especially investors, when I deal with investors, a lot of them have bought six, seven properties. So they know the process, but because they're not doing this day in and day out, they have enough confidence to want to drive the to want to drive the, the the vehicle, they want the steering wheel, okay, but they don't have enough knowledge or enough current knowledge of what's happening in the market. A very, a very good example comes to mind. Um, I recently sold a house, um, um, Warden and Eglinton area, St. Clair area. Warden and St. Clair area. Um, there was a neighbor. He was a repeat. He was an investor. Um, he had multiple properties, and he, his neighbor came up for sale. Okay. So, and that's the house that I was selling. Now he really, really wanted to move his sister close to him. 
next to him, that was a big thing for him because, you know, imagine, imagine living next to your sister, her kids, your kids, you know, and he was so adamant about, like he really, his whole family really wanted that house and I really wanted it for him. Now, as an investor, he couldn't help but negotiate. And I, I'm not, I wasn't trying to rip him off, but I was telling him that, look, this is what it will sell for. And he's like, nope, it will never sell for that much money. You are not being honest with me and I can only offer you this much. And I said, look, it's up to you. If you want to place a preemptive offer, preemptive is basically before we have a bidding, uh, the bidding date or the offer date. Um, and he was convinced and I'm like, look, okay, no problem. If that's your top number, bring it Monday. Okay. Bring it on the offer date. If it's, if you get the house, you get the house. And he kept calling me. He kept, he called me Saturday. He called me Friday. He called me Saturday. He called me Sunday with the same number. And I said, there's no way I can accept it. I'm telling you the difference is only $20,000, but in his mind, that $20,000 was the, you know, was the extra $20,000 that I was trying to scam him out of. <laughs> and Monday came and I got the offer accepted, which was $30,000 higher than the number I told him. So essentially 50,000 above. So because there was somebody else moving from Vancouver here and they really wanted the house and they offered me 50,000 more. And when I told him, he's, he said, Nope, I don't believe it. He literally told me like, no, you don't have, there's no way you have that number. Yeah. And the offer was already accepted. I sent him the number. I sent him a picture of the number. I'm like, here you go. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, Oh my goodness. And he was totally like two days ago, he was arguing for 20,000 yet over here. Someone else paid me 50,000 more. If he was so savvy, he misjudged by $20,000 on a house that he really, really, really wanted. Right. So with first time home buyers, excuse me, with, with investors or rather, um, experienced buyers, uh, my only recommendation to them would be, I understand you have enough experience. Yes. Do what you want, but don't write off experience of the professionals, at least listen to everybody right? Listen to everyone, understand where they're coming from and then make a decision. Yeah. I, th I think it's a, uh, it's, there's also maybe that need to, to say, to, to express that uh, as an investor, I have that experience, which, um, which yeah. I mean, obviously if someone's been investing, they have experience, but the realtor and the professionals working throughout the process, the mortgage broker, the lawyer, they do this all day, every day. So they have some very valuable input to provide you in that process, even though you've been through it 10, 20 times, right? Or 50 times, whatever it is, they mm -hmm. still have, they've been through it 50 times a month, right? So, so it's like, well, there is still a distinct difference in that volume of, of work that you're doing, right? So definitely, I think, uh, good advice. Um, so. Yeah. Omar, you know, this is where trust again comes into play. Trust comes into play. You have to trust the person you're dealing with. I'm going to give you an example, and this is such a pertinent example, and this kind of makes realtors look bad. And some, I mean, it is going to raise, you know, uh, it's going to make some people even more skeptical of realtors. But I will give this example nonetheless, because honestly, I feel sincerity and trust is a big, big factor in this. I was selling a house last year, uh, and the house has been on the market because it was, it was, it was a complete gut job. It needed a significant amount of improvements. Another realtor calls me and says, Hey, I am willing to bring a buyer. I have a buyer. I'm interested. What can you do on price? Okay. And the house was listed at 600. We were, we were willing to sell it for 570. And I told the guy, I'm like, look, 
we're the house has been on the market for a while. Our bottom number, if you bring me 570, we can make a deal. Okay. Now the 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 actual number was different. But I said, look, if you can bring me 570, that is acceptable by my buyer. Excuse me, by my seller. So if you bring me 570, I can we can make this deal. And he turns to me and he says, Monas, how about I bring you 600, but you add $30,000 to my commission. I did a double take. I said, I said, wait, what are you talking about? He's like, my buyer is willing to pay 600. I'll bring you 600, but you yourself said you're willing to take 570. So you know what? The house has been on the market for a while. I know you're desperate. Sell it to me for 600. Add the extra $30,000, which you were willing to give up anyway, to my commission. And on that house, I was already paying him $25,000 commission. So he wanted to add that $30,000 to his, to, his, to his pocket. And it blew my mind. It completely blew my mind. I'm like, how can somebody do that to their own buyer? Yeah. You're getting paid enough here. What are you talking about? And this is the, and I didn't do it. I was like, no, I can't, I can't do this. It's get, I will do it in writing. Right. I will do it in writing. But even then I just didn't, it didn't sit well with me. I said, this doesn't work. What are you talking about? I, you want me to give you $60,000 commission, that $30,000 of discount that I'm willing to give belongs to the buyer, not to you. But he was just so shameless about it. It blew my mind. I, I was speechless. I didn't have the, the gal to be like, you know, what the heck are you doing with your life? Yeah. Um, and I wrote it off, but there's people like that. There are people like that. And that, and those are the people that make people lose trust in, 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 in professionals and in, in realtors. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's true. You, you hear about it, maybe you see an article or something. Um, and then you think, uh, uh that's something fishy is going on, but at the same time, that's why I think, like you said earlier, it's important to interview the realtors the mortgage brokers, the lawyers, because then you're getting to know them and you need to really understand that do they have the same kind of principles and values too and, and work ethic that you want as opposed to someone who's willing to do those kind of things. Because at the end of the day, that 30000 is not just 30000 for him uh, ripping off one person. It's that anyone who's buying in that neighborhood now is now comparing against that 600 otherwise would have sold 570 So now you're taking, you're adding to the entire neighborhood, not just that one property. So it's a crime yeah. that impacts a lot of people, I guess, is the point. Um, 100%. So I guess um, uh, we talked about the mistakes um, and, and kind of what first-time home buyers, investors do. Now, age-old question. In today's market, firm offer or conditional offer? What do you think? Do you – it depends on how much you like the house. It depends on how – what the condition of the house is in, okay? It depends on um, what else is available in the market. For the most part, for the most part, I will say going within a condition isn't going to be acceptable. It is very difficult to get a condition across. The only way the sellers will be able will accept your condition is if you pay them significant more money. Okay. So, for example, you have two buyers. One offers you eight hundred. The other offers you 840 and the one that 840, he sounds sincere on the phone. He's like, you know what? I'm qualified this and that. 
everything but i really 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 need to run by my um by my mortgage broker and i'm adamant adamant on having a finance condition so give me three days for finance and the seller thinks you know what if if waiting for three days is going to get me forty thousand dollars more possibly then that's worth it and they may accept a, an offer forty thousand more for in exchange for three days now that person may walk away that's a, that's the deal right that person may walk away but if that person walks away sure in this market waiting doesn't hurt in this market the seller can always say you know what i will sell two weeks later from now no don't no no problem i know that i won't have a problem reselling okay versus let's say if the two buyers one came in at 800 the other came in at 805 the one with eight of the one who wants um 805 wants three days the one who's 800 is firm as a seller nine out of ten times the sellers will say you know what we're here to do business 800 this is firm deal once i sign the paper deal's done okay i will accept in which case the five thousand dollars may not be enough to get you the condition if you're in a house if you are in if you walk through a property that needs significant upgrades or that needs significant renovations that is a that you already know that it's going to be a complete good job at which point you may want to get a property inspection because you yourself are not a tradesperson you're not a construction worker right you're not you're not a contractor you cannot anticipate the amount of work it's going to go into so for you putting a condition might be the only option versus a contractor can walk in and the contractor is an ex he's experienced and he's going to say you know what i know to turn this house around i'm going to need $180,000 so i am able to put a firm offer in which case if you're competing against a contractor that already knows what he's doing you're not going to have the same confidence as him to place a firm offer so there's multiple things depends on the property the what else is available on the on the market if on the same street there's five houses that often happens one sells and then one person puts up the board the other person puts up the board and automatically it's like you know everyone's like oh okay i'm gonna get this much if on one if on if on if on one street you have five properties um and you have options you have a sure go with the offer i mean go with the um go with the conditions, conditions. yeah exactly if you're not if you're not confident in your own finances if you know that your finances if your mortgage doesn't get approved or the appraisal doesn't come through the appraisal you buy something for nine hundred thousand, and the bank says it's only worth 860 you know that if you know that you have no other way to arrange for that extra forty thousand dollars and you're going to lose your deposit then yes if you are that close to failure you know um to the edge yes play on the safe side put an offer because for you there is no safety net but if you're somebody who says, you know what, I do have money in my RRSPs or, you know, my, you know, my car is worth this much. I have money in stocks, this and that. If for some reason there's an appraisal gap, worst comes to worst, I am able to tap into my line of credit. I have assets that I can liquidate to fill the gap. In which case, yeah, you, you kind of do have to play on that little bit risky side to get the house because you're competing with others who are, who are more certain of their finances right now 20 percent of all homeowners own multiple properties why because they use the equity from first to buy the second 
And once you have two properties, the third one, you're going firm because you know you have enough equity in the, you know, in, in mm -hmm. backing you that if something happens, you can you can cover that 20, 30, 40, $50,000 gap. Yeah, financing becomes less of a risk. And I think that was very good advice because uh, often because of our market, how fast it's growing and this all this competition, I think the a common assumption is that you have to go in firm and you should always go in firm. Whereas, yeah, sometimes, like you said, it's important or it might be strategically important or you might be in the position where you're able to go in firm. All those things could contribute to it. But in other circumstances, you should be going conditional, I think is, is, is right, a, a good interpretation of that. And we've seen the, the, the negative end of that where you have um, the property goes through the process. They have a, a, like a, a signed agreement of purchase and sale um, with the mortgage broker gets to the lawyer a little bit early. So it's with us now. Maybe they're getting financing or they have financing conditions in place. Financing falls through. Everything falls apart. Um, you have panic. You have the blames going around everywhere. And then, then the buyer is now trying to find maybe a new mortgage broker or maybe going to a bank or private lending, whatever it is, to be able to fix that kind of issue at the end. So I think it's very well said. <coughs> Depends on circumstance look at all the, the factors, right? Don't ever just just do something just because you think that's always the right answer, right? There's, it doesn't work like that. There's, there's your, your, your realtor needs to guide you through that process. Your realtor has to know more about your circumstances to guide you correctly. So on the other end of that, um, what are some steps sellers can make or what are some important steps sellers can take to avoid issues and even get the best possible price? Um, what do you think, uh, in your experience, is a good process? So, one right now, with the market being what it is, it's a good time to be a seller. It's the seller's market. Okay, the biggest mistake that I see sellers making is is not spending enough money where you should. For example, you should you get what you pay for. I really believe you get what you pay for. If you save money on commission and you get a realtor who is a discount realtor, right? You get a realtor who cannot even negotiate his own commission. If you get a realtor, if you interview a realtor and the and the realtor says, I want 2.5% and you say, you know what? I will give you 1% and the person says, okay, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. If somebody cannot even negotiate their own commission, how will they negotiate your interest? right? Um, you need to spend money on staging. You need to spend money on cleaners. Don't skimp. You get what you pay for. There's, there's cleaners that cost $100 and there's cleaners that cost $600. There's stagers that cost $500 and there's stagers that cost $10,000. There's realtors that cost $999, right? Um, and then there's realtors who cost 3%. It, it all depends. And you get what you pay for. Now, trying to save 1%, on a commission. For example, let's say it's a million dollar. Million dollars is a very average number. Um, that's where the average sales are right now. Let's say one. Per, if you go with the wrong realtor, in order to save one percent, that is ten thousand dollars. Okay. Now, trying to save ten thousand dollars of commission, you hire somebody who has no experience or less experience who cannot negotiate their own interests, let alone your interests, who is in a rush because 
the realtor who charges 1% has to sell twice or three times as many houses to compete with the realtors who are dealing with, you know, at any point, one third of the workload. Okay? That person will be in a rush. That person will cut corners everywhere. So you get what you pay for. Trying to save $10,000, it is better to actually give the gift, spend $10,000 so that realtor can market your property right and get you $15,000 in return. Now I'll tell you, selling, a lot of people say, you know what, that's a lot of money. And I, and I agree. You know what, if I was in their case, I was, if, I was, if I didn't know what I know, I would completely agree with that too. But understand that trying to save $10,000 could cost you $15,000. In which case, you're not a winner, you're actually a loser. Okay? How you market something makes a difference. Who you market with makes a difference. Yeah, no, I, I, I when somebody comes, go ahead. if you're in the buying side, if you're in the buying side of things, let's say you're a buyer. So sellers stop, you know, think like a buyer for a second. You go into a house and you walk into a house and everything is how it should be. Okay. It is marketed properly. There's feature sheets, there's printed, you know, there's printed material, uh, distributed everywhere. Um, it is, there's been online paid advertisement. All these things are done. You walk in nicely staged property. And you say, you know what, this house is 1 million, but I'll put an offer for 120, like million and 20,000. If you're already spending $1 million, that extra $20,000 is not gonna matter to you if the property speaks to you, right? That's, that's fair, that's fair, right? If you walk in, you walk in to buy something that's $100 and you like something better that's $102. Are you gonna think about it? No, that thing just speaks to you more, right? what makes something speak to you it's how it's presented right the guy who's doing it for 9.99 yes you're saving twenty thousand dollars in commission but guess what you're losing out losing out on you're losing out on staging you're losing out on professional cleaning you're losing out on professional paid advertising if selling is your only goal to be honest you can sell a house on kijiji you could 100 <laughs> percent, you could if somebody was dead set on selling a house themselves or saving on commission, you can take a picture with your iPhone and put it on Kijiji and guarantee you, you are able to sell it, but you're not going to get the money. You're not going to get top, top dollar. Trying to save $30,000, $40,000 in commission, you just cost yourself maybe 100000 less. You could have, had you gone the professional route, you could have gotten 100000 more given $40,000 in commission and still come out 60,000 ahead. Yeah. Okay. So that's a mistake that sellers make. Sellers you have to spend money to to get money. And and I find that um, uh, at least I mean I know there's often disagreement on this topic, but I find mm -hmm. that the seller's realtor has a harder job than the buyer's realtor because the seller's realtor has one house that can only be sold and that house is fixed its characteristics whereas a buyer's realtor has a budget right? And that budget can apply to any house. So you're competing for different assets, whereas you only have one asset for sale. And that makes the importance of, like you were saying, having a good realtor even more kind of salient because now that that will make the difference in whether that house will sell for one price that's maybe average or an above average price or even a below average price, depending on the quality of the realtor. Look, this is exactly, this is where experience comes in. For example, in one neighborhood, everything sells for 200,000 above asking. 
for example. And a realtor comes in and realtor says, you know what, instead of 200, instead of underlisting it by 200,000, I will only underlist it by 50,000, hoping that I can get that much more. Okay, and when he gets the buy, the buyer realtor's call, he's unable to defend his, 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 his price point. Guess what? He actually just costed you money because everyone that walked through the house, A, maybe not enough people saw it because today when someone looks at the property, looks at uh, when someone filters properties and he says, you know what? In this neighborhood, everything is selling 200,000 over asking. If my budget is 1 million, I will not look at properties that are 1 million. I will be looking at properties that are, you know, 850-ish or below. An experienced realtor knows this. An experienced realtor knows knows this. And in, an inexperienced realtor may either under underprice it by too much or by not enough. Both of which are going to cost you people. Both of you are going to cost you visits. Both of you are going to cost you people who want who come to see your house and place an offer. So the right buyer was willing to pay fifty thousand dollars more. But guess what? That right buyer your realtor didn't capture the right buyer because of a failure in the in the listing strategy in the marketing strategy and the pricing strategy and it ended up costing you money not yeah you didn't save money uh going the cheap route it costed you money well said um i think we're coming to kind of our the end of the the podcast we did have a few a longer discussion but i think the the first two topics no, you, you did uh we it was such a good discussion. Yeah, it, it was such a good discussion that uh, it just kept going. And I, I think it was this was it, uh-huh. it was it was very uh, informative for buyers, sellers, mm-hmm. investors, first time home buyers, anyone who's in the market uh, or, or looking to sell or looking to enter. I think a lot of that information uh, uh, was uh, would, would be was helpful. I think a lot of the advice that was given. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to just before we we go, I, I just want to one more time. If anyone wants to contact you. Um, what's the best way? My cell phone, 647-526-0333 or my website, monis.ca, M-O-N-I-S dot C-A. Yeah, it, it, has, it has my email, my phone number. It should be, it should be linked under. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Okay. I can see the layout. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah. I am, I'm, I'm on Instagram. I real monis1. So if, if, uh, if any of you are on Instagram, please, um, follow me and, uh, get to know what I, what I do and, uh, you know, what my day-to-day business looks like. Thank you for, for coming on and hopefully we can have you on for another session. I think it was absolutely. A great I would love to be here. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Mona. If you're looking to retain Treadstone law, it's never been easier. Our entire process is online from completing the retainer to your signing appointment. Everything is done from the comfort of your own home. No need to take time off to visit a lawyer's office for your signing when you can complete everything from your living room table. The best part is you don't have to pay anything when you're retaining our firm. Visit treadstonelaw.ca slash MASOffer or click on the link below to retain us today.